All right, so we are in Judges again uh, this week. Um, Judges is a book in the Old Testament, and uh, last week uh, we started talking about Samson in chapter 13 and his birth, and he was given every advantage possible uh, as, um, as a leader of God's people, that he, um, he had a miraculous birth, uh, that he was chosen and set, set apart by God uh, to be a Nazarite, we'll talk a little bit more, which is just a, a kind of a special commitment towards holiness, and then that he, was, uh, that he was stirred by God's spirit as he was growing up through his adolescence. And so when you get to the end of chapter 13, you're expecting that the next three chapters of Samson, uh, you'd have this great godly leader. Uh, and that is exactly not what happens. And uh, we will begin to see that uh, this week as we uh, talk about uh, this hero. So uh, let's pray and then we'll read our, um, let's read our text and we'll pray. We got the whole thing tonight, whole shabam. Uh, verse 1. Uh, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Remember, uh, the Philistines are the people who are uh, oppressing God's people. And so Samson, being an Israelite, now wants to marry a Philistine. I'll keep making some notes as we go through here. Then he came up and told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go down to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an opportunity to be against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you will give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. And on the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? That's quite a threat, huh? And Samson's wife wept over him, that's Samson, and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. 
You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and I shall not tell you. She, she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. On the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him, On the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, please don't call your significant other that ever. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon. Ashkelon is a city in Philistine. And struck down 30 men out of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. The word of the Lord. Rated R tonight. Um, Let's pray together. Father, we know uh, that your word, you make a promise. Your word will not come back void, even parts of your word that seem bizarre, as this one does. And so, Lord, I I pray that we would see ourselves in Samson, and we would also see the great mercy of God that we see even in this narrative. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, So I want to start the sermon out by talking about fires tonight. I uh, got a hold of uh, reading about the California wildfires. Perhaps you've, you've heard about them, but there have been really two big ones that happened in, at, towards the end of 2017. Uh, the first was in Northern California, like wine country territory. Uh, lots of devastation uh, happened there. Um, 44 people died. And then in Southern California, uh, it was severe too. 200,000 people were evacuated. And the total economic toll that happened here was $180 billion. And as I began to look through uh, pictures of what happened in these wildfires, you saw people running out of their house with pets, with children, uh, with their belongings. Uh, I saw a picture of uh, a little prop plane flying over this huge home, and it was, uh, it was dropping a flame retardant over the house and over the surroundings. I saw another picture uh, that, was taken, that was an aerial view. It was like a satellite picture, so it looked like you could see what you would normally see like a, 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 the map of California. And from California, you saw like coming up towards, you know, towards outer space coming up, um, you saw these huge pillars of smoke coming up, even from the satellite view. Uh, I saw this picture of a, of a, it looked like a teenager, and he had a hose in his hand, and he was squirting down his front yard before the fire got to it in hopes that his house, too, would not be burnt. It's really, it was really scary, honestly. Uh, and my heart broke uh, for these people who've been affected by this natural disaster, and it makes you really wonder, what good could come from this? 44 people died. Hundreds of thousands of people evacuated from their home. Billions, $180 billion of loss. But you, you know how these things work. There, there actually is some good that happens. Uh, one, of it, one of the main, it really does bind communities in, in many ways as they begin to work together to rebuild their city for a new future. But what I also found out is that there's a huge benefit uh, to, the, to, to the outer rings of these fires that are in the forest, particularly the forests that are in Northern California. Uh, usually, we view fire as an enemy. And the way I've talked about it, that's what it sounds like. But fire can also be a friend. Because the edges of these fires is going to prove vital 
for the survival of many species. See, what the fires do is they clean out the forest floor. They remove the low-growing underbrush, and they let sun get in so that the trees can grow healthier, stronger, and taller. Fires also, they clear out the heavy brush that lives, uh, that, that lives down there so that, uh, so that animals can eat the new grasses that spring up there, and they provide new habitat. Um, uh, fires kill off the non-native insects that prey feast on these healthy trees. So fire has this unexpected good that comes from something that sounds so devastating. And I think the same is true in our own lives. See, suffering of all kinds. Uh, it's really hard in the moment to believe that God has something good for his people in it. And we really do struggle to see what good can come. And this is just, and it, but when we get some perspective, once we kind of get through that season, we can usually look back on it and see how it worked, how God was working in our lives. For instance, if you were sick, you see how God created perseverance in you that you benefit from today. Maybe when your life's going better and you look back and you see how you were persecuted for your faith and how it forced you uh, to study and pray the way that you hadn't before, how it's good for you today. Maybe you see in a really difficult season of singleness, you see how God was forcing you to maintain lasting friendships. But there's one type of suffering that's really hard for any of us, no matter how we're doing, to see how God can do anything good with it. And that's the suffering that happens because of sin. See, even in our most faith-filled moments, we see how God can leverage death, how he can leverage sickness, how he can leverage loss, pain, for our good, but how does he leverage sin for good? Doesn't a holy God have to keep his distance and not associate with our wickedness? The answer seems to be yes. But the passage that's under our consideration that we just read tells us something very different. We're going to see uh, not the devastation of wildfires, in our, but the devastation that comes when a person does whatever they want. That's Samson. You'll see, you already have seen, and you'll continue to see that his motivations are driven by his appetites, by his selfish desires. But you also see a God who's working parallel to Samson, and he's taking Samson's wickedness and accomplishing his purposes, not just in spite of, but through his wickedness. So I have two points. One is the weakness of Samson. And the second is the strength of God, uh, the weakness of Samson. Uh, you got the four scenes, right? You got the first scenes where he uh, has found his wife. Uh, he, found, he finds this Philistine. That's verses kind of one to three. The second scene, you see him with a lion. I mean, if this had a YouTube video, it'd go viral in a hurry, wouldn't it? I mean, he's killing a lion with his bare hands. And then the third scene um, is his bachelor party. So he finds his wife. He's on his way. Um, He's on his way to his bachelor party, and that's when the lion comes up on him. Uh, and at his bachelor party, you see him there with 30 hired Philistine bros. And they're doing what uh, all guys from all eternity have always done when they're in groups of 30. Uh, they're sitting around making bets. If Samson win, he gets 30 outfits. If they win, they get 30 outfits, one apiece. Uh, his new bros, they, uh, they agree to it. Uh, they end up solving um, the mystery with the help of uh, Samson's wife because she nags him and seduces him. Um, and then we see how he gets those 30 outfits at the end of the chapter, don't we? Uh, he went and killed 30 Philistines and took their clothes 
and then gave them to 30 other Philistines. And so as we read, as this story unfolds in chapter 14, we really see two things arise. The weaknesses that arise from him are the first one is that he's impulsive, and the second one is he's unteachable. Uh, the first one, that he's impulsive. See, Samson, he moves through his whole life with what C.S. Lewis and Screwtape Letters calls an all-I-want mindset. He makes insatiable demands for whatever pleases him at any given moment. And this is true from the very outset. Look at verses 1 and 2 and then the end of verse 3. Let's read it together. Uh, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You see that last phrase, right in my eyes. Um, he is at least saying that he thinks she's hot. Uh, and as we see, w- there is so much more uh, going on than just that he is attracted to her. Uh, we see that what he means, she is right in my eyes, is that she is right in my opinion. She's right according to my standards. And as the narrative unfolds, right here in, in, in chapter 14, then the beginning, and then at the end, as, she, as Samson gets seduced, and then we'll see it again in chapter 16 with Delilah, Uh, That when Samson is confronted with his lust for women, he is completely helpless. Because all that matters to him are his sensual impulses. Uh, Woody Allen, a famous uh, uh, actor, uh, he's produced tons and tons of movies, and uh, he's got a really famous quote. His famous quote is, The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things, meaning romantic things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. Uh, Well, this famous quote is taken from a a Time interview, Don't Time magazine. And um, in it, he's being interviewed about his relationship with his current wife, Soon Yi Previn. See, Soon Yi Previn is his current wife, but he's had a wife before Soon Yi, and her name was Mia Farrow. Uh, Mia Farrow and Soon Yi have a relationship. Mia Farrow adopted Soon Yi before Woody Allen married Mia Farrow. Do you get this complex mess now? When Soon Yi had turned 21, Woody Allen was 57, and they begin their relationship while Woody Allen is married to Mia Farrow, Soon Yi's adopted mother. The heart wants what it wants. Sounds like Samson, doesn't it? But this pattern of impulsiveness, it continues for Samson. Um, You see it with the lion. When he's on his way to marry the Philistine, he comes across this lion, and he kills it with his bare hands. And if you were with us last week, you know that this is a huge, huge no-no, because Samson was a Nazarite, which according to number six meant that he could not have contact with a dead body. But if he did come in contact with a dead body by accident... Number six goes into immense detail of what he could do to become clean. Because now he's unclean because he's touched a, 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 a dead animal. But this ritual of becoming clean again was very tedious, and it lasted eight days. And remember what Samson does. When, when, he, when he comes upon this line, it's when he's on his way to be with his Philistine wife, to marry her. 
So if he's going to go back to the tabernacle, take eight days, that means that he was going to delay his trip to be with this Philistine girl. And there's no way that's happening. Because his all-I-want mentality was stronger than his desire for God and his ways. But it gets worse in the fact that he doesn't go back uh, to, to, to get clean. What gets worse is that, because he has this unintentional uh, encounter with the lion, but then he has an intentional encounter with the lion when he goes back and he scoops honey out of the, out of the dead body of the lion. So this is a blatant violation that he comes across these bees and he feasts, that they're feasting on this carcass. But the honey's just too enticing for him. He's going to go back to have a lick or three. Samson wants what he wants. He's a sensual man. His senses control him. He reacts to how he feels about what he sees without any reflection or consideration. Now, I know you probably haven't scooped, lion, or scooped honey from a corpse of a dead lion this week. I haven't either. But if you are like me, I bet your impulses got the best of you. And maybe it was a choice around your sexuality. You stepped outside of God's sphere of sexual purity for you because your heart wanted what it wanted. Perhaps it was with your money. Maybe you made a decision out of a materialistic mindset instead of a gospel mindset. Your heart wants what it wants. See, the question for all of us is this. When is it hardest not to act on impulse? For Samson, it was his sexuality. That's when he acted impulsively. But there's something for Samson and for us, truthfully, that's wrapped up into our impulsiveness, and it's our unteachable spirits. You see this in Samson. Um, His parents, they try to talk Samson out of marrying the Philistines, and they try to talk him into marrying an Israelite. And it's easy to read this with our own modern lens and think, oh, gosh, Samson's parents just need to get tolerant. They're so intolerant that they're not going to let him uh, have this interracial marriage. But it's not about interracial marriage. It's about his interfaith marriage. See, this inter, this for, uh, an interfaith marriage is forbidden, according to Exodus 34 and with Deuteronomy 7. God's people were not to marry non-believers. Same is true today. But God wasn't against interracial marriage because you see it with Moses. Moses married a non-Israelite in Zipporah. But when Samson is confronted with his heart wanting what it wants, he dismisses his parents' counsel. And he dismisses it purely on personal grounds. He is unteachable. See, Samson's demand to his parents reveal his total disregard for authority. All he wanted to do was to gratify his senses. And we see it in verse 2 with the word now. He can't delay it. And as we look at Samson in chapter 14 and then again really next week with chapter 15, we see that Samson is really just a, just a bigger picture of Israel, writ small. He's not unique among Israelites. He's a caricature of the whole nation. Because later uh, in the book of Judges, we get this same phrase, a phrase that says that he, she was right in his eyes. We get two summaries of the spiritual state of Israel in 17.6 and 21.25 that say that the whole nation did what was right in their eyes. See, Israel rebelled against the Lord. And that what had happened is that they had totally become enmeshed with the Philistines. They were peaceable neighbors so that they didn't even groan under the occupation of these Philistines. Instead, 
they assimilated into them to the degree that they were indistinguishable from one another. So it really is a miracle. It's going to take a miracle to separate these two nations. But that's what the strength of God accomplishes in our narrative. He drives them apart. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Meaning, did not know that Samson marrying this Philistine was going to be from the Lord. For God, he, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So what we get in verse 4 is kind of a pause. You know, if, we, if this was a movie, we'd see this conversation that happens between Samson and his parents, and then we'd step back and we'd see the narrator sitting in a comfy chair telling verse 4 before we get to the lion scene. So what happens here is, is that we get to see what's going on underneath the, surface, underneath the surface. Because Samson, if you left him to himself, there's no way he was going to elect to save God's people from the Philistines. But even though Samson's not going to do this, it doesn't hamstring God. Because Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness are going to keep God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. But how God? How did God do it? Well, think about how that story, how it flowed. It says, God uses Samson's lust to get him with 30 other Philistines, where in his pride he tells a riddle that he loses. Then he has to fulfill his end of the bet, which led him to kill 30 Philistines to steal their clothes, to give them to the 30 bros at his bachelor party. It's wild, and it's intricate series of events that snowballs this whole conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. It gets the Israelites out of their cozy relationship with the Philistines, which is exactly what God wanted. And God used Samson's sin to get it done. That's just how strong God is. His purposes are stronger than Samson's sin, and they're stronger than yours. So in chapter 14, we could draw out a lot of implications, and I think it's got two. The first one is, uh, you can trust God even when evil leaders are in charge. You'll have a hard time going through the Bible and find a bigger numbskull than Samson. But God used him. And I'm sure if we were to see what Samson's parents, how, what it was like for them to watch their son uh, rebel against the Lord. I- I'm sure they were brokenhearted because we've seen in many ways that these are people of faith. I'm sure there were other believing Israelites besides Manoah and his wife who were wondering, what, God's, what is God up to with such a moron who's been given the title Savior of God's people? And maybe you've been in a situation where you've been following a leader with a massive shortage of integrity. Maybe the leader's been a political leader. Maybe it's been a leader in a church or in a school. Maybe it's been a parent. Maybe it's been a leader at work. If so, it's really easy to view that leader. They're a combination of Satan, Darth Vader, and Hitler wrapped up into one. See, bad leaders are everywhere. They're even in the church. I've heard uh, lots of stories uh, from you about Christian leaders who have hurt you. And usually when I hear those stories, it's usually a membership class, because in membership class, we go through those five vows. If you've been with us, you know what those five vows are. If you haven't, you'll see them soon enough. 
But the fourth vow talks about uh, submitting to the government and discipline of the church. And the first couple times I taught that, I thought, oh my gosh, people are going to hate this. They're going to roll back, back their heads, submit to authority. Are you kidding me? This is, what kind of cult am I joining here? And um, I think that does happen for some of you. Uh, but I wish I could show you the conversations that I have with people after I teach on that vow. Inevitably, I have people who have been raised in or around the church who said, I wish that godly leader stood up for me and stood up for my family when I was a kid. But it didn't happen because they were under bad leaders. I've heard stories about how supervisors have used their employees to pad their pockets. I've heard of stories about how parents have abused or neglected their children. And if that's you, I'm so sorry. I wish I could say uh, that I'll be a perfect example of what it means to be a godly leader, and I can't. Uh, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to do things as a church leader that's gonna, that are going to hurt you. But the good news of this chapter is that there's great comfort in knowing that God is at work behind the scenes. God can use sinful leaders for his larger purposes that we just can't see, that we just don't know about. See, God can be trusted. See, remember the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is the one where he has older brothers. And if they're older, they're more powerful, they're bigger, they're stronger, smarter than he is. And what happens is that they sell him into Egyptian slavery. And through a really long series of events, God puts Joseph in a position to save his people, specifically his brothers. But when he gets in the position to save them, he's had many years since he's been sold into slavery to reflect upon the painful events that have got him into this position of power. And when he stands before his brothers, they're nervous. They think, gosh, he's going to kill us now. He's the powerful one. We're the ones who are vulnerable. And he tells them this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. He said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. See, running parallel to the evil intentions of other people is a God who's working behind the scenes for his glory and your good. You can trust him. I think even a better example than Joseph is Jesus. Acts 2.23 says, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let me read that again. Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It sounds like something you'd read in a news report, right? So-and-so was killed by this person. So on the surface, we should see what's going on here. Jesus was murdered, and it really was someone's fault. Yet running parallel to the sin of these lawless men was a God who was using the death of his beloved son so that you and, my, you and I might receive eternal life. See, the death of the sinless son of God was the greatest injustice that's ever been committed, and God used it for his glory. And what that means for you and me is that he can use any injustice committed against you for his glory, which means you can trust him. The second thing we see is none of us are disqualified from being used by God. Let me make this real simple. If God can use a moron like Samson, he can use you. You can't out God's grace. God can use you regardless of your past. I don't care how awful your sexual exploits have been in the past. Jesus can use you. I don't care how long you've been running from God. Jesus can use you. 
I don't care how much you've drank, how many pills you've taken, how long you've been smoking, how long you've been shooting up. God can use you because if he's found you, he just didn't find you to take you to heaven. He wants to use you in the here and now. But in the here and now, you've got these voices. You've got the guilt. You've got the shame. You've got the condemnation. And you feel like your past is keeping you from being used by God. But that's exactly what the evil one wants to do. He wants to convince you that you don't have what it takes. He wants to convince you that sin really is stronger than grace. He's trying to convince you that if you've not been dipped in Clorox and sprayed with perfume, that you're unacceptable. But if God uses a lust bucket like Samson... If he uses a murderer like David, Paul, and Moses, if he uses a drunk like Noah, he can use you too. And when we come to this table, that's what this meal is for, friends. This table, I'm doing the job before I get here, but I'll do something else when I get down there. But here's what this meal is for. Yes, this meal is to help you individually reflect on the grace of God that's been given to you in Christ. To remember that your specific sins have been nailed to the cross and you're free from that guilt and shame. But what this meal also does is that it empowers you to be used by God in this world. You know how much fun Samson would have had if he would have just relented? I mean, I I didn't even bring this up. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon him twice in this passage, and he didn't even know it. How much more he would have enjoyed his life if he would have submitted to the purposes of God, because God was going to use him one way or the other. So why don't you submit to the purposes of God so that you might enjoy the fact that he's going to use you? Let's pray. Father, what good news that <laughs> your grace is more powerful than our sin. Uh, Lord, what good news that we can't outsin your grace. Lord, I, I pray that we would not uh, try to whitewash this story, or we, not, we would not try to get out of the fact that we're not as bad as Samson, um, but Lord, that we would really see ourselves in Samson, that we would see our impulsiveness, that we would see our unteachable spirit, but we would see a God who's stronger than that and who can work in spite, not just in spite of, but through our darkest hours. Um, uh, Lord, do this in our hearts, we pray. Amen.